am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. My name is Jonathan Wetzel, and I'm a senior partner at McKinsey & Company based in Shanghai. I'm also a director of our research institute, the McKinsey Global Institute. In this podcast episode, we're looking ahead at the business news agenda for 2022. The pandemic continues to affect our communities and across the region, response and recovery march on at different paces. We are joined by two of Asia's most senior journalists from the Financial Times and Reuters to discuss the business news themes that will matter to senior executives in the year ahead. Our guests are Robin Harding, Asia editor at the Financial Times based in Tokyo, and Kevin Kralicki, Asia regional editor at Reuters based in Singapore. Robin, Kevin, welcome. Pleasure to have you. Hi, Jonathan. It's Robin here from the Financial Times. Hey, Jonathan. It's Kevin here from Reuters. So let me start with a little bit of a question about surprises. 2021 was uh, was full of them, both good and not so good. So to you, what was your biggest surprise about 2021? Well, Kevin, why don't we start with you? Sure. I mean, I think broadly uh, one of the surprises was both the degree of economic resilience in some areas and persistence of economic disruption. So, I mean, just to take, for example, the U.S. economy, I think headed into last year, there had been expectations that it would have been a, in a more traditional, a slower recovery. And, and in fact, if you look at what happened in the job market, you know, it wasn't 6% unemployment at the end of the year, as some had expected, is much, much lower and an outright right, shortage of workers, a critical shortage of workers in many areas. You know, similarly, despite everything we've been through, China's economy is still growing at around 8% last year. So that's, you know, on the on the positive side. On the persistence of disruption side, you know, I think it was another year for many companies of a hybrid or uh, adjusted work. We saw a deepening uh, through the course of the year, although there may be some improvements. We can talk more about that of some of the supply chain disruptions that had, had characterized uh, started to emerge at the beginning of the pandemic as well. So uh, an economic bounce back, faster than expected, but a slower or a different kind of recovery on the work side and on the supply chain side. Robin, what was your big surprise? Well, actually, I was going to say something quite similar um, to Kevin. If you told me two years ago that we were going to have a massive global pandemic, the, you know, the worst in 100 years, and that the world economy would be bigger at the end of 2021 than it was at the start of 2020, I would have been pretty surprised and I wouldn't have believed you. So uh, the perform- what's happened with the economy throughout the pandemic has been a constant series of surprises. Um, I don't think many people anticipated the resilience in parts of the economy. Um, people did see inflation coming to some degree, but maybe not quite in the form that it's taken. One other surprise I would add is I think that the in Asia, uh, the arrival of the Biden administration has not changed the dynamics in the way 
we might have thought it would. So it's very much been a continuation of tension between the US and China in Asia with all the repercussions that has for regional trade, supply chains, tariffs, all the rest of it. And I guess that makes you think this is now a structural thing that's here to stay for a very long time instead of a a one-off in the Trump administration. Well, I'm going to pick up on that because uh, it seems like there have been surprises and then there have been maybe less surprises or surprises of an of a different kind. Would you be saying that, that you see some of these stories then becoming, if you will, kind of a part of the landscape for the next year? What are the things that you've seen over the course of this pandemic or the last year that you think are not going to change going forward, that are basically new realities for us? Well, so it's always very tempting to extrapolate. And I do think we can extrapolate on the the regional tensions between the US and China. That seems like it's going to be now a feature for decades. And inflation looks like it will be a 2022 story as well, although I think that could change very quickly. Uh, it's certainly right now, it's a very big concern, but there's a very plausible scenario where that, that drops off again. I think one thing that's likely to be new or newer in 2022 is more criticism of Asia's handling of the pandemic and probably some relative underperformance in Asia. And that's not to say that there are real problems, but A, I think as we see the US and Europe really getting back to normal because COVID has spread so much, people are going to start looking at Asia and saying, you're all still in quarantine, you're all still, nobody can travel. Um, and I think that the the handling of the pandemic from China's zero COVID policy is going to come in for more criticism. And then simply because Asia did better during the pandemic economically, I think we're going to see relative outperformance in uh, the US and Europe. And that may also draw some attention. If I could just expand on something Robin said, I think that's that's right with regard to Asia and COVID. And I think an, an interesting, a really interesting test case over the course of this year is China, you know, which has had a zero COVID policy headed into the Winter Olympics with a kind of a bubble within a bubble strategy of containment. Obviously, a couple of, you know, big high profile events, the Olympics and the party Congress toward the end of the year. But I think it's a really interesting and open question of how long that policy can persist against the against the trade-offs. And I'd be interested, actually, in your view there, too, Jonathan. Well, okay, so let me, let's dig into some of this. So we have regional differences in the recovery and the rates thereof and, uh, and differential. That's going to be a story. Uh, we've got inflation, potentially, sort of seeing how long that lasts. We have the whole how did we how do we handle the pandemic uh, and uh, approaches and the zero COVID policy and to what extent that's a, that's a sustainable policy at all. And then finally, we've got all of this regional tension. So quite a lot of things that we see kind of going forward that could lead us to a belief about, you know, how unexpected 2022 might turn out to be. It's uh, it seems it seems a little daunting, but let, let's dig into some of this. So. On the uh, on the recovery, uh, so what have you been seeing in terms of the things that would lead you to believe that uh, the economic recovery is going to really sustain itself? What are some of the leading indicators that you look at, the things that, whether it's around people going back to work or investments or consumption? And uh, maybe I could start with you on that one, Kevin. Okay, among the indicators that, Ching, I know we want to re- report on, of course, the there are the traditional indicators, and we all watch and 
report on those. Then, you know, I mean, given, and we've talked a little bit about it, just the extreme nature of some of the disruptions over the course of the last year, I think there are other indicators that are, you know, that sort of bear watching too. So supply chain has been a constraint. It's been a source of price pressure and, you know, in some cases, outright shortage. It's, you know, among the remarkable things about the last year, the U.S. economy is booming and grocery shelves in some U.S. cities are almost empty, you know, kind of, again, on the, against the metric of, if you'd told me that, I wouldn't have believed it a year ago. That's, that's probably ranks pretty high. And I should, not too much of a digression, but I'm here in Singapore where everything is imported and there are no shortages. So clearly some economies and some systems have handled this better than others. But, you know, among the other indicators, I think that bear watching are on the supply chain question, container shipping costs, delivery times for manufacturers reflected in the PMI. Now, we've seen some improvement, I think, in recent months. It's caused some to say, well, maybe this is, maybe part of this is uh, just cyclic. But I think a, a really interesting question we could talk more about is how much is cyclic? How much is really here to stay? How much is, to what extent does just in time, you know, as a whole, philosophy of operating need to be rethought or innovated around. So what I'm taking is that there are some things, you know, those are some indicators that, you know, executives making sure they keep an eye on. One is on the cost side and on the and the other is on, I guess, the, the you said supply chain itself, the availability of the whole supply chain might ultimately become one of those things that people really need to cont- maybe ex- even increase their level of attention to. I don't know, Robin, what are some of the things, what are some of the metrics that you're looking at? So I think I'd say two things on this. First, 100% agree with Kevin on the general picture, but China doesn't look as robust. And there are some signs of slowing in the Chinese economy. When you look at the indicators around the property market in China, it's fairly clear that 2022 is going to be a relatively difficult year for the Chinese economy. And even relatively difficult years for the Chinese economy still tend to involve high levels of growth, but that definitely bears watching. Um, I'd also give us just a slightly more theoretical answer. I'm not sure that you need to pay enormously close attention to economic indicators to think that the recovery is going to stay robust this year. Governments have still been pouring the stimulus into the economy. Um, You see everything moving in one direction across most advanced markets. It would take something quite significant to derail this in the short term. So if I were an exec, I would not be obsessing over the economic data right now. I would be working on the assumption that we're going to have a fairly robust global economic situation to deal with. Well, in the absence of looking at at those types of numbers, as you say, that the stimulus packages have been truly uh, breathtaking and unprecedented, uh, what else do we look at? I mean, what are some of the non-economic uh, indicators or surprise thing, areas where executives should keep an eye on here? To go to another micro, I guess, indicator that I think is of interest and has been defining in the past year. If we look at the chip availability and pricing, you know, I, I think, the, again, there's a question here about how much of these price increases were cyclic. You know, we the kind of the economy works through them and how much these price increases are here to stay. And I think, I think initially, if we, if we look at the demand for lagging sort of last generation chips, which are very, you know, the automotive industry now with sensors, with uh, autonomous drive technologies, uh, Internet of Things applications, we're really hungry for these chips. Demand is way up there. Capacity is limited. 
prices you know for the high end chips or there's still pricing power there and there are indications that that you know that work is getting more and and you're seeing kind of across the industry people saying well these price increases are here to stay for now so that's that's one i think that that also bears watching of course you know that hasn't been the history of that industry it's tended to be boom and bust so that that's worth watching Jonathan, could I, I come back in with one more indicator that I definitely would watch, and that's labor costs and wages, uh, specifically in the US, but also in other countries. Because if we are going to get sustained inflation, it's going to become because wages start rising. And as any executive knows, or at least executives in the vast majority of industries know, your biggest single cost is wages. And you only really get inflation over a sustained period of time when wages go up and people start demanding higher wages because they see higher prices. And that's how inflation over the long term gets going. So I would be watching that very closely because that's what, A, it tells you what your biggest cost is going to be doing. And B, it tells you whether you should expect significant inflation over the medium to long term. I mean, I think Japan is really interesting on that score, on the question of what happens to wages. And the the BOJ for a very long time has wanted to see, I guess, what they would consider healthy inflation, you know, wage-driven, consumption-driven inflation. But if you look at what companies are saying, and we do a survey every month, and the latest one that we ran, something like 54% of the companies we surveyed, it's about a set of about 250, said they want to keep or expect to keep wages flat. And something like 5% are actually looking to cut uh, you know, labor costs over the course of the next year. So something, something's got to give there, or not. Well, let's let's dive into this labor a bit because I think yeah, there there was clearly I've seen analyses about the concern that people have on particularly in in I would say the U.S. markets about the uptick in in labor inflation as being a function of it's it's basically much easier to fire people than to hire them, and so we are having a a, a real drag here in sort of coming back and looking for labor and that's driving it. How have you seen the labor picture play out in Asia? Is it is it this is it a similar sort of demand side pull through on, on wage inflation? Um, is there something else going on with uh, subsidies and with uh, I mean we went to effectively uh, in many parts of the world UBI for a good year or so and now we're pulling that back and so I mean, what what's the labor picture in Asia? Um, I may start with you, Robin, because that's where where we left off. So look, this is what I think is happening. You don't see the same level of wage inflation or disruption in labor markets in Asia as you do in the US or Europe. And I think that's entirely down to the pandemic response. So Asia controlled the pandemic largely, had relatively few cases, didn't disrupt its labor markets to anything like the same level as the US and Europe did. As a consequence, when the US and Europe are reopening, you're seeing all this disruption, and that's what's generating these real dislocations in labor markets and high levels of wage inflation. And I think that the difference between Asia and the rest of the world is very telling on that. Actually, I think that's quite optimistic if you're a business, because I think it means that this is a temporary disruption. It is related to the pandemic. And most likely, after a while, we will get back to the pre-pandemic environment where it was a constant struggle to generate inflation or significant wage rises of any sort. And businesses had it very good in terms of their labor costs for a long time. 
So that's my my basic assumption about what's going on, but I wait for evidence to prove it one way or the other. Well, makes sense. Uh, Kevin, any reactions? I would just say, I mean, I think one one story that we you know we focused on over the course of uh, of last year that I think bears watching, and and it has a an overlay with the agenda of ESG investors, and the 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 S the S and ESG sometimes gets overlooked, but labor conditions in the manufacturing supply chain are in focus, and in some instances, if you take Malaysia for instance, with a largely migrant manufacturing workforce, there has been pressure for um, better conditions, and that means higher costs. Women at an iPhone plant outside Chennai shut down the plant uh, again at the end of last year uh, over over working conditions. So I, I think it bears watching kind of through the supply chain from Asia as well. Well, that would really be a a big marker of change. And uh, if we, you know, shift a little bit to that sort of the linkage between business and society, saying you know, that this 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 pandemic and maybe just the times have have triggered a new set of expectations um, across business. Uh, I mean, it's certainly something we hear a lot about from the social, from the environmental side uh, in terms of climate expectations. You now you're raising the social side. Is that something that you think will become more of a story in in this the, in 22 and onwards? That have have things really changed in terms of a of a different expectation of business in Asia? Maybe it's too early to say, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't venture a forecast, but just, you know, there are enough pressure points that are out there that I think it's a, you know, it's an issue that bears watching. I'm a big old cynic when it comes to this. I feel that businesses are under a lot of pressure to take it seriously. And I meet an awful lot of people with ESG on their business cards, uh, whether something has fundamentally changed in business attitudes or the actual expectation of businesses, I'm not so sure. For years, observers have talked about Asia's massive future potential, but the future arrived even faster than expected. The question is no longer how quickly Asia will rise, it is how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. So we should be, uh, as my father would say, wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. So bear in mind that there may well be quite a lot of storytelling, but we have to actually look at the at, at the reality of it, which... Uh, it does does bring us back to this question of labor and the recovery. The recovery hasn't really, I mean, I think one of the things we're sort of grappling with is that who really recovered fastest and, uh, and did when we recovered, we went back to work. Was it the same work? Did technology, did our response to the pandemic change our work? We become more digital, we become more online, we become more automated and which changes the demand for labor. Could that be something that's going on here that's also changing the sort of the, the economic outlook for, for labor, uh, both in US and maybe also in Asia? I don't know, any, any reactions? Did, we, did things change with work because of the pandemic? I, I'm not sure. For, you know, in, in our industry, you know, information, media, the, the work that we do, there's no question there was like a, a you know, we reinvented basically the virtual newsroom or invented the virtual newsroom and in some respects kind of, you know, made, made process improvements over the course of last year, but a lot of work. And if we talk about kind of the choke points 
uh, you know, supply chain or um, the public health system or making an iPhone. Those things can't be done on a Zoom call. So, you know, to what extent the the, the changes that, that we've experienced kind of translate more broadly, I, I don't know. So I have two points on this. I'm, I'm convinced that some things have fundamentally and permanently changed because there are some things that actually work better on a Zoom call than they do in real life. And my classic example of this is a parent-teacher evening. I don't know if you've, you've got kids, if you go to the school and you've got to go around and meet all the teachers and it's class, it's some um, corridors full of parents trying to find the next classroom, the next teacher and the schedule doesn't work. You do that online, you just click, click, click through the Zoom rooms and the whole thing is low stress and the teachers can go home and they're happier and the parents are home and they're happy. So and it's, it's a trivial example, but that's something where the technology actually changes how the organization works and i'm not really sure what the the places are where that's that is true but i'm sure there are a lot of them where i don't think it changes is we know it's been studied exhaustively the evidence is very convincing there are big productivity advantages to people being together in an office there are big productivity advantages to people living in dense cities close to each other it facilitates innovation it facilitates collaboration i just don't believe those business and economic facts have changed so i believe we will all end up back in the office i don't think everyone's going to be working from home in the countryside but there will be changes and it may not be 10 it may be 10 years before we realize what the things that fundamentally changed as a result of the pandemic were. That's a really subtle point, I guess. I think that we are going to, I mean, technology moves on. It's going to change the workplace, no question about it. But it doesn't mean you're going to lose the workplace. <laughs> the workplace will evolve in, in some way. But the value of being in a place where you can communicate with people around your work, that seems to still be really uh, something we, we should be uh, holding on to, if nothing else. So that's, that's encouraging. I think also, you know, to that point, there's there. If you think about the you know, the kind of work that has that has gone virtual and you know isolation based in some respects, I think there is a, a pent up kind of demand to get back to something like a more traditional uh, workplace. Definitely on the part of management, I think that's true in finance. It's true in our industry, and also you know from. It, it, workers are not uh, all uh, the same on this score, but I th you know what's interesting. It's been interesting to me is is you know younger workers, particularly early early career workers, seeing the benefit more strongly of being you know in in a physical uh, workplace. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that changes over the course of this year too, and what what COVID allows. Right. Well, I, I, so again, to the point that there is something here that we're discovering about work and where it's valuable and where it's less valuable. So rapid fire, one-off interactions that require a lot of transaction costs, like parent-teacher interactions, perhaps not so much, uh, but but a repetitive, ongoing, creative exercise where you're, you're the serendipity and sort of the uh, the opportunity to sort of cross-fertilize. Yeah, maybe still we need a lot of that. So how does that? How do we rebuild our workplaces for that? How do we ensure that, that 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 type of interaction is maximized? Really exciting opportunity, I hope, for, for our real estate listeners. Let, let me turn to one other topic, which, I mean, we've touched on it already, is the supply chain. It's coming back to what you were saying, uh, Kevin, about sort of things that are secular and stochastic or cyclical 
And as well, tying back to what you were saying, Robin, about kind of the tensions. So as, as we see the supply chain, one of the observations is the regionalization of trade and that uh, people are starting to see a more uh, Asia for Asia, America for America, Europe for Europe kind of world. I don't know. What do you see about that? Will it kick off a new round of regionalization of, of supply chains? I think there's a few different things going on. So there's also a positive side of this in Asia, where we're seeing big free trade deals being agreed. And we've had the CPTPP, whatever it's now called, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Then there's the RCEP, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is basically a big free trade deal bringing in China, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and all the, the ASEAN countries. So that's a sort of positive form of regionalization. That's the same regionalization that you got from NAFTA and the creation of the European Union. I mean, it creates trade because you have lower trade barriers within within a region. And I think what people worry about is the negative form of regionalization, which is the creation of trade barriers in order to protect your economy or for national security reasons. In general, I'm quite skeptical of those because there are very powerful economic reasons why global supply chains emerged in the first place. And as we saw with the US trade barriers created by President Trump, I mean, they haven't made a big difference in terms of the trade picture, and they cause some friction for businesses in particular areas, but you know the fundamental forces driving it are strong. I think the area where there's a really big question is semiconductors, because we're seeing and hearing about all sorts of work going on by the US, the US with its allies, really aiming to wall off the semiconductor industry and essentially deny China the ability to create its own um, fully competitive semiconductor sector. And that really does balkanize the system um, if China chooses to go ahead and create its own system. And I think that's all still in flux. And that's a big 2022-2023 news story that we'll be watching very closely. I think that's right. I think another area to, uh, Robin, you called it the balkanization threat, but an another area to watch is data. You know, China has, over the course of the last year, made very clear that there's a national interest uh, in the control of data. Sometimes that's been couched in discussion about data privacy, but it's really about uh, the control of data. And the U.S. has made it clear that it sees a national interest there. So I think that has all kinds of implications for evolving in industries like the networked automobile, for example. And, and how how that evolves, and whether there are you know dual and competing standards. Yeah, I, so I mean, I, I this is going to be a very interesting discussion, right? And we're going to wind up potentially playing with three separate sets of data standards, data privacy regulations, and uh, data you know sovereignty requirements. It's going to uh, pose, I would think, some fairly significant challenges. Do you see businesses starting to respond, starting to take that into account as they are thinking through their capital or their R&D platforms, I guess R&D platforms? I don't know, from talking to businesses so far, my impression is that and they're, they're very concerned about data regulations, but data is also the most malleable, free-flowing thing that businesses deal with. So it is something they have a lot of flexibility in how they manage. I and mean, even sort of at the software level, you can physically keep the data in one place while 
it not having to affect your your operations as much as you might think. Um, but I do think, again, in semiconductors, you're seeing real business decisions being affected by this. And a good example is the TSMC and Samsung decisions to build enormous capital investments in semiconductor fabs in the US and TSMC in Japan. I'm not. I'm still not sure it's a permanent shift because I, mean, I always come back to this. There are powerful economic reasons why they all went to Taiwan in the first place, and those reasons will still reassert themselves if given a chance. And semiconductor fabs, you know, you have to re-up your investment of ten or twenty billion every few years in order to keep the fab going. So this stuff could all reverse itself quite quickly. But we are seeing, you know, important capital investment decisions now being made with these these sort of forces in mind. And sticking with the topic, but Kevin, I wanted to tweak it just a bit. From we started looking at it from the business side. What about from the consumer side? Do we start to see any more? Did the pandemic do anything to Asian eyes or localize uh, consumers along with everything else? Did did you? Are we seeing any more regionalization from the consumer side? Asians for Asian brands and and Asian products. Uh, is that is that also a feature of regionalization? I don't know if it's a, an effect of the pandemic, but I think China for China brands is a is a trend. You know, we've all been watching, and you know, it's it's striking that, for example, in the market for EVs, um, foreign brands are something like less than a third of the market uh, in China, and um, you know, premium automotive, luxury are areas where I, I think foreign brands had assumed they would be in a position of competitive strength for some time in China um, and kind of watching how that evolves, I think would be very interesting. I mean, I think this is actually a McKinsey number, but, um, you know, by, by 2030, uh, the number of Chinese households in upper middle class and higher consumption brackets is expected to be something like more than the U S and Europe combined. So. So I, mean, I very much agree with Kevin uh, that this pre predated the pandemic, and I think a really interesting example is the cosmetic sector, where you saw in Japan and then in Korea the emergence of really big cosmetics brands, which are you know focused on Asian sensibilities and have grown to become very big. But then what's even more interesting is that once they grow big in their, their home markets and in Asia, they then go global. And so you see brands like Shiseido um, from Japan now sold all around the world. And one of the things I'm really interested in, and I hope our reporters are watching out for, is the emergence of Asian consumer phenomena, which then go global, because those are fascinating stories. Uh, we had a, a great piece a few weeks ago about Shein. I don't even know if I pronounced it right, but it's this this fashion retailer, which is the sort of the first new fast fashion model to really emerge and succeed since you know, H&M and Zara and, and brands like that. And I really didn't know anything about this classic sign of middle-aged man, but it's fascinating. I mean, it's, that's a new Chinese business model, which has emerged and is now huge in Western markets. Yeah, I know I'm not supposed to talk about companies specifically, but I've been on their website and I can tell you, yeah, that's a Chinese website. That works. It's all flashing lights and things coming at you all the time and and with with Chinese prices, with Chinese prices. So this is, you can see, a new thing. (laughs) It's a really interesting company, yeah. 
Well, you brought up the the EV, so I'm going to just, I know we're running towards the end, so I wanted to bring, come back a little bit to climate and sort of, I mean, I, I take the point earlier, uh, Robin, about uh, let's, let's, let's not get carried away here about businesses and, and uh, their, their so-called, uh, you know, credentials, but isn't there a rising awareness of climate here? Is that, I mean, as I, you mentioned Taiwan, I I have to feel like people are starting to get a message here around hurricanes <laughs> and, and sort of the, the, just the reality that Asia is that much more exposed to a, a changing climate. I don't know if this is something that you started to see both from the adaptation side and people saying, well, let's buckle down. It might be a bumpy ride. And from a mitigation side saying, well, you know, are we going to fundamentally see a difference here and a change of our of our energy economics, for example? I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, Robin, let me start with you. And coming from Europe, what I notice most is the difference in attitudes. I mean, in Europe, environment, climate change, I mean, it's a quasi-religion. It's sort of become... Uh, a thing that people are really passionate about and they feel this sort of almost existential anxiety about climate change, at least in some circles, and wanting to tackle climate change for very powerful, internally motivated reasons. The difference I sort of see in Asia is when I talk to businesses, when I talk to governments, I find that people see it more as a sort of technocratic problem you know, equivalent to sewage in the in the streets or something that needs to be managed and, you know, dealt with by investment in infrastructure. When it comes to corporates, people see it, well, you know, there's a big business motivation now. Um, certainly when I talk to Japan's car companies, they've all gone, oh, these EVs, this is really going to happen and it's going to hurt our business unless we do something about it. We better get serious. So I see that kind of you know, real seriousness about environment and climate change. But except on the fringes in the richest parts of Asia, I don't see the same European style of passion about climate change yet. So I, I feel that's the difference. Yeah, I, if, if I could, um, I mean, just to zero in on the auto industry. Um, but one, one thing that's interesting to, to me is, and, and we, we track the... Um, the commitments of global automakers to you know EV and battery investment, and over the past three years, that's you know almost doubled. It's you know their stated commitments of something like five hundred billion dollars over the over the coming years. At the same time, when you look at what's selling, SUVs are now something like 46, 47% of global demand. If they were, um, you know, I saw a statistic that's sort of eye popping. If they were an individual company sorry, country rather, they'd, they'd, be, they'd be six in the world uh, for carbon emissions, you know, the, the global SUV fleet. So clearly there's a, there's a still a disconnect between consumer preference and where the investment's heading. And it's, it's striking to me that, you know, companies, to take uh, Toyota, for example, that pioneered hybrid technology that for a long time were seen as leaders and have a, you know, a credible claim to what they've done to reduce emissions. Are, are, are actually now seen uh, as behind the curve and because they haven't gone fully behind the uh, commitment to, to EVs. Yeah, it's a real, real predicament. And, again, I, I guess I, yeah, something has to something has to give there because consumers, <laughs> every other car is an SUV um, 
and we have $500 billion in investment coming into EVs. That is, you're framing up a real challenge, and uh, we, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of make a note that we are coming out with a big number fairly soon around the net zero transition and what that implies for capital expenditures, especially given the pipeline that we currently have of, uh, of high-carbon uh, capital expenditure. So, uh, yeah, I can see that Asia will be right at the middle uh, of all of that. And uh, so that could be a very big story for 22, 23 and, on, and ongoing. I think we're coming to the close here. So I am also, as, uh, as, as Winston said, I am an optimist. There doesn't seem to be much point in anything else. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm going to ask each of you, what is the one thing that you might be optimistic about uh, in, uh, in 2022? Kevin, why don't, why don't we start off with you? Well, I don't, I don't remember your, the, the, um, the, the, the maxim about the snake and the, and the dove, but you know, I think I want to be a dovish snake or a snakish dove um i i you know i if there's one thing um i think and and professionally i think i'm barred from optimism or pessimism but you know if you look at the resilience of the economy over the course of last year uh the capacity of of companies to adapt and innovate i guess i want to be optimistic about the the kind of capacity for uh, upside surprise uh that's still there um, well, I work. I work for a British newspaper, so I'm allowed to have opinions. The in general, I'm I'm still enormously optimistic about Asia. If you look at what's happened in Asia over the last twenty or thirty years, then hundreds of millions, even more than a billion people, have been lifted out of poverty by economic growth, free trade, capitalist economic system. It's it's truly one of the most awesome and inspiring success stories in human history. And it just ticks along every year without people noticing just this amazing material transformation in people's lives. And that's still going on. It went on throughout the pandemic, hardly missed a beat, and it's still going on. So in general, I'm I'm just enormously optimistic about that. We just have to make sure we don't mess it up by going back to a world of, you know, conflict between great powers and and you know losing this basis of peace which allowed for prosperity. And so I'm tremendously optimistic just with that one worry. So well said. I could not add anything. Thank you so much, Robin, Kevin, a wonderful dialogue, and let's look forward to an optimistic 2022. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.